Now, setting objectives is always a big topic amongst product people, as you know, and one often used framework is OKRs or objective and key results. Now, in this episode, my guest, Megan Murphy, will take a different approach into setting objectives, and we'll talk about her unique way of setting these objectives based on a common language to rally the product team, and also dividing up these objectives into discovery and delivery ones to make them more relevant for a product team. Now, Megan is a product leader who has led product teams in San Francisco, Brazil, China, Spain, and in fully distributed environments. Her product background includes big tech players like Microsoft, Skyscanner, as well as both young and late stage startups. Now, Megan's work spans many different product maturities from building fresh MVPs at seed stage to experimenting at scale and 80 million MAU products and most steps in between. Now, in addition to her work in product management and leadership, Megan is both an entrepreneur and also an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, she launched an internal incubator at, at Skyscanner. As, and as an entrepreneur, she actually owns a direct-to-consumer women's apparel company. Now, in her role as VP of product at Hotjar, she leads the company's product management, design, and data and research teams. And Hotjar, as you might know, makes behavior analytics software for product teams and their stakeholders. So get ready, guys, for a really, really interesting chat. My guest, Megan Murphy, on how to set meaningful objectives for your product team. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Shirazian, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Megan, welcome to PM Hub. Thank you for having me. For sure, yeah. So it's it's very uh, interesting the topic we're going to talk about today. But I guess before we get started, you know, talking product and product management, I'd love to hear your journey into product and how has it evolved over the years. Sure. So I got my start in product uh, by happy accident, and I'll try to give you the TLDR on the on how it unfolded. So. I'm originally from New York, and like any good New Yorker, I started my career on Wall Street because I thought that's what I was supposed to do, like programmatically. (laughs) Um, And I realized shortly thereafter that that was not a great fit for me. So I had the opportunity to join Microsoft in their academy for college hires, and that was my first foray into tech. I moved from New York out to San Francisco. And um, after a couple of years there, I recognized that just like any good millennial in San Francisco, Um, the big corporate grind was also not the right fit for me. And so I spent the first like four or five years of my career finding what wasn't working. Um, And then I went to a small series A startup of 23 people working on a health tech product, basically trying to make a nutrition, uh, replace a nutritionist with a nutrition app. And it was straight out of an episode of Silicon Valley on HBO. And it was a really crazy adventure, but I got into product there because I was so sold on the mission that I was willing to do whatever role they had open in order to join them because I am really into health and nutrition and fitness. And um, I actually joined them as an account manager despite having never been an account manager before. And little did I know that I would go there to, to manage the account and try to win the client, which was Microsoft. So I could not escape the, the hand that fed me. But Microsoft at the time was trying to push its own Windows Phone platform. This is that long ago. And um, and I I couldn't get the deal signed with them, with this 23-person startup and Microsoft, unless we developed an app on the Microsoft Windows platform. And so I had no idea what to do, but I Googled how to make 
app Windows Phone, found a company in Belarus who would be willing to do it, and then found out that Microsoft had a grant for any startups that built apps on its ecosystem because they wanted to help like build up the supply of apps to get, get the user and chicken and egg problem. Anyway, long story short, I made the app. Our VP of product at that company um, was really impressed the lengths I was willing to go to make sure that people would find value in the product. And I did our first user research there, um, which was really scrappy. And it was just like paying with coffee for people to talk to me about nutrition. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that was my foray into product. And since then, I've moved on to other companies, um, a couple other startups. Um, I went to Skyscanner. I went to um, N26, which is a late stage fintech based in Berlin. And now I am leading the product team at Hotjar. So a couple of countries and a couple of companies later, and it all started with um, how to build a cool app on something I was passionate about and doing whatever I needed to do to, to make it happen. Very cool. Very cool. I love this like, very interesting journey in New York, San Francisco, and then uh, Barcelona, Berlin, back and forth. That's really cool uh your journey so far it's very awesome and how you got into product as well that's 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 hilarious probably one of the coolest stories i've heard about uh people's journeys into products <laughs> well actually the the thing that's that sealed the deal for me to move on to the product team in that startup was that when we launched this app um we got really really strong ratings i think it was like four star ratings in in the app store but then within a couple of weeks um we had made some big mistakes on how we captured people's um, daily like check-ins or something. And um, due to this mistake, all data was lost completely. And we started getting like flooded with one-star reviews in the app store and it seemed like a disaster. And it was, there was a fire to put out. I learned what that, like the whole firefighting mentality, what it meant. Um, once we fixed the problem, I reached out to every single person who submitted a one-star review and let them know when things were back up and running and they could access all their data. And I think it was like 450 individual um, customer outreach uh, from me. And then people just came back and gave us an even higher app rating and said, whoa, a human being contacted me and told me that everything worked again. And I like that moment really sticks with me even till now because I think no matter what scale you're operating in, if you take the time to be human, it will be recognized by another human and they will, they will, you can regain trust even with big mistakes. So I think um, that was what sealed the deal from me moving into the product team. And that's something I, I literally think about all the time. Yeah, no wonder. I mean, like uh, you, you made a successful product career because you focus on the users, right? So that's something that, um, totally relatable uh, from that sense, right? So you had that, you know, in you, it sounds like, and that's that's awesome how, how far we've come so far. That's pretty cool. So let's move on to the topic at hand, Megan. You know, objectives, I'm curious to know, like there's OKRs, objectives, and key results out there. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about them and, uh, you know, what do you think about them and, um, how, kind of like if you can share with us, you know, you haven't, you have, I'd say different perspectives onto it. So I'd love to, if you can give us a bit of background into that, kind of like what got you thinking about maybe modifying uh, and that approach or maybe adopting it to your own uh, specific environments at work. Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> I think that generally the, I think it's the responsibility of leaders to set solid goals, like goals that make sense for a company. And I think that OKRs as a framework are, adopted so widely because in tech we have this 
idea that if it works for Google, it'll work for us. And I think that OKRs are not always the right lens to see things through, um, especially given leadership maturity and understanding of what OKRs are and what they, what, how they can be really impactful and how they might not. So I, I've seen, I've, what I tried to do at Hotjar is, is really just bring these learnings to life where I didn't see them used very well. That doesn't apply uniquely to OKRs, just in general, like my style to product leadership is trying to be the product leader I always wished I had before as an individual contributor. And setting objectives is a, is a good example of that. So for example, I find that a lot of teams will add quarterly objectives or something like um, pay down technical debt of this service by X percent or um, do three user interviews. And I think at the end of the day, what we need to start doing is focusing less on those things and focusing more on a common language. And for example, at Hotjar, we have an objective this quarter which is to make our product experience faster and or more fun. And it gives our teams two choices, literally make it fast. So improve underlying performance issues and, and reasons for latency. Perhaps that means address technical debt. Perhaps that means upgrade to a more modern language. Perhaps that means um, rethink our architecture, right? There's so many ways that that objective of make it faster can be interpreted in a way that satisfies engineering um, needs and, and the way that they want to push technology forward. But it also leaves room for our design colleagues to see, okay, you could make it faster and or more fun, right? So if I can, get, if I can provide a compelling waiting experience, then I might be able to help ease the pain of waiting, right? So we could see this example play out in something Slack used, used to have. So when Slack was loading up, it used to have the ability for you to add custom quotes to um, the waiting screen, the loading screen. So it'd say like, you know, a famous quote by somebody you know of, or it, even just something from your colleague. And when Slack fixed its underlying performance issues and latency was no longer an issue, they got rid of this waiting screen and there was an uproar on Reddit for people who wanted to bring that back. Now, how crazy is that? People wanted less speed and more fun just because they got so used to the fun. So I think that on one hand, we can craft better objectives that encapsulate the work across many disciplines and make it a no-brainer. Like if I say make it faster or more fun, this gives the PM to finally prioritize, this gives them the incentive to prioritize something that might've been on the backlog under like pay down tech debt. It gives engineering the opportunity to think through how to make things more efficient. It gives design the ability to think through, ooh, what would be a great interaction here? What would be a beautiful visual experience here? So I think that's one thing is setting objectives that can really rally people. And the second thing is, is really to take seriously that OKRs are a ruthlessly quantitative framework. And you know the whole point of them is to be measurable, objectifiably gradable, and time-bound. So we should not use them for things that don't literally move business metrics. And for that reason, at Hotjar, we use actually delivery objectives with key results, standard, and we use discovery objectives with key questions. So those are the things like, what do you want to learn? What are the most compelling problems that you want to dig into and figure out more about them? And then what are the key questions you want to be able to answer when this quarter is over? Because ideally, if we are constantly living this simultaneous discovery and delivery mantra that's swept the product community by storm for the last five, 10 years, then we need to be able to carve time to do it. And so that's exactly why I delineate between delivery objectives, stuff you've already discovered and validated, 
and discovery objectives, stuff you want to learn that you can apply to a solution in the future. Yeah, no, I love that. I love how you would distinguish between the two and kind of like, like you mentioned, you would rally the team by giving them specific objects, uh, objectives to, to work on like an example of like, you know, make it faster or more fun. And it could mean different things to different teams, to engineers versus designers uh, from, from their perspective. So my next question is like, how, how would you balance between setting these two set of uh, objectives on delivery and discovery? I would say that the, that the delivery objectives should indeed be things that move the needle for the business. So, um, so I, yeah, I think that in this case, you know, we have comp we have annual company objectives and quarterly tribe and squad objectives. And so every annual company objective is going to be inherently quantitative, right? That's the measure, the, the way that we measure success and health of the business, let's move those needles in the right direction. So the, the delivery objectives, I think, will always be an expectation because I think that the whole reason you invest in a, in a team in the first place is to exchange their talent, skill, and expertise uh, for outcomes. So I think that's a, that's a non-negotiable. I think that the discovery objectives are less in competition with the delivery objectives, but more just formalizing the fact that this is also part of the gig because I expect product managers, product teams generally, I expect them to be continually assessing opportunities through the lens of customer value, risk, business viability, things like that. So it's really just a formalization of the work that's happening elsewhere so that they could get the support they need from, for example, user research to help with, you know, can you check this uh, design, this, this, the, the way I've designed this research study or uh, from a data team, hey, can you make sure that we are um, looking at the right events in this funnel or something like that, you know? So I think it's really just formalizing it more in, and not leaving it as side work because I don't think that discovery is side work. I think that's half the job. Yeah. Well, I mean, some argue, some people out there that like you say, this discovery is is uh, is, is actually, the, the, is really important actually to go as far as the saying, you know, what they should be. And maybe that's why I think to your point, Google, like they, I talked with the Google uh, PM lead and they have like one in five is researchers. They have the money to invest and be really, really, really product led in that sense. They can, you know, they can spend the time, a lot of time in the problem space without having to deliver on the, you know, business objectives because they have the money again, right? So I think uh, that's a distinction there that uh, to your point, you know, it, it, it's it's work, people like just blindly following just because it worked for Google, it will work for us. 100% I'm with you. So so in that uh, whole sense of like when you say you have the annual delivery objectives that's from the company, they're business focused. You have them, they're non-negotiable, they're there. It does make sense. The company needs to make money and you have this discovery uh, kind of objective. So uh, is it like uh, the way you, is it fair? Like, I mean, actually, I should ask you this way. Like, how would you go about connecting these discovery uh, sprints or whatever you want to call them, objectives quarterly to the business? Like, is what's the cadence like, you know, if you were to, do, you know, uh, delegate your team to work on certain discovery objectives versus delivery ones? Yeah. So he here's a... Um... Here's an example that might play out over the course of a year. So let's say that we have a pretty typical, I mean, Hajar, we're a B2B SaaS company. So um, our key metrics shouldn't shock anybody who works in this space, right? We're talking about retention, churn, LTV, and stuff like that. 
So if we're talking about, um, about um, ARPA, average revenue per account, and we know that one of the reasons for, um, for churn is that people feel like they aren't getting enough value out of our product. If we dig into that, why are you not getting enough value? Maybe the answer is, and I'll be fully transparent here because I think I don't really know how else to be. Um, our recordings product and our heat maps product, they could use some room for improvement in performance. I'm not like gonna sugarcoat and say that they're perfect products. They're far from it. They always will be far from it. I don't think anything's perfect. So. Um, so we have some performance issues to fix. And if people say, oh, one of the reasons that I turned is that I'm not getting enough value. And then we follow up with a with a, a question for them or like ask them, hey, could we jump on a very quick call? We just want to understand more clearly. Maybe we might find from them that one of the reasons that they that they turned is because they feel like it takes too long to get value out of the product every time they sit down to use it. And if we dig a little bit further, we might find that um, they they think it takes too long to load certain parts of the product, right? So then we start digging into what are the motivations? What are the shortcomings? Where have we failed to meet their expectations? And then how can we, how might we fix that, right? So actually this, this initiative around make it faster or make it fun is because general um, data out there about, about the relationship between speed and monetization shows that for every 100 milliseconds in latency you have, you can expect about a 1% drop in conversion. And so that adds up. And so by way of finding ways to make our, our product either faster or the perception of faster speed, we can help people like we can, we can basically they'll be more inclined to stick around <laughs> if the, if it's working at a, at a pace that they expect, which is largely groomed by the experiences they have in their personal life using consumer tech every single day, right? So the, the bridge is, the gap is closing between B2B and B2C products, and we need to stay up to their expectations and speed and performance. And we know that if we take too long, that there's lower chance that they'll actually stick around. And then retention suffers, and then LTV suffers and then ARPA suffers. So I think it's like peeling back the onion on how these metrics come together and then figuring out what is the, mi the, the minimum research we need to be able to do or the minimum discovery, minimum feasibility testing or usability testing or whatever. What is the minimum we have to do to have confidence to make a decision on where to go? Let's do that. And so this is how I think that they're related, but it does take a bit of a longer term view, which is why I think you need leaders who come in with uh, an air of decisiveness and, and commitment to goals and they're willing to, to see them through. And, and I think through that lens, you can start to figure out which are the biggest problems where you should be discovering and then subsequently delivering against those learnings. Like what you hear so far, make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself and I'm thankful for your support. Now let's head back to the show. Yeah, no, that's 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 really clear. Thanks for elaborating. And I guess a segue to your you mentioned uh, you know align, aligning stakeholders. Like I'm curious to know because I mean especially like for companies who are you know backed by investors, they want dividends and returns. How do you align stakeholders to you know to kind of like align them around or let's say rally them around to focus on these problems going after the solve that they're likely leading indicators of let's say churn that you mentioned in your case. Uh, how do you go about like aligning them 
with your thinking of let's let's focus on the problems that like you know our users are suffering, which is a you know what you, in your example you mentioned, and not necessarily focus on the short-term financial returns after money into that. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, I'll put one thing out there, which will be, I imagine, is unlike much of the environment that your audience has, which is that Hotjar is completely bootstrapped and has no outside funding. Uh, that is one of five reasons that I came to Hotjar, actually. I wanted to see what it was like to work for a team of founders who've been able to achieve some really great signals of product market fit, um, build a great business over the course of seven years, and uh, do so without any external injection of capital. I thought, I've got something to learn from this group. So, the, so in terms of pressure, I think that in my role, I faced less pressure than most folks who work in a fast-growing tech company in a similar role. So I'll just say that at the moment, I can't empathize, but surely in the past, I could. Um, but how do I align people to make sure we focus on these things? I think it comes down to a term that I hear more and more of, but I see less and less skill, which is storytelling. Um, I think that there is so much to be learned from other areas far outside of tech, like way outside of tech on how to tell a compelling story. Um, one of them is there is a book called The Seven Basic Storytelling Plot Lines, and that's a good place to start. So, you know, you have the hero's journey, right? So, oh, um, you start out, you see somebody in their everyday life, and then after that, you see an unusual day where they face a problem, and then you see the hardship they face, and then you see them overcome, and then they are the hero, right? So this is just one of many other paradigms that we see and how we um, understand and uh, messaging and how we like perceive communication generally is most stories can be distilled into a couple different archetypes. And I think learning how to tell a great evidence-based story is really key to winning anybody over. Um, there's another great book called To Sell is Human by Dan Pink. I use, I've spent most of my career um, joking that I'm a terrible salesperson and I prefer to just make products. And after I read that book a year ago, I realized that I had it all wrong. Like 40% of our day in a non-sales role, like in product, for example, is actually spent convincing people to either act or to give them permission to act. And that in and of itself is a form of sales. And so I think that recognizing what's in it for someone else, why is it in their best interest to come on, come on this journey with you is absolutely key to convincing anybody of anything. And I don't mean convincing for the sake of being self-serving. I mean convincing because ideally, you know, you, your ideas are worth pursuing, right? If you really have this vision, you really say, I know where we're going, let's go together. And then you tell somebody, here's what's in it for you. Here's how this makes your team's lives better. This is how you, um, you know, feel like you're here for the mission and you participate in it. Here's how you meet your goals. Here's how you, uh, I don't know, it could be very tactical, meet your metrics, get a promotion, whatever. Like if you, if you recognize what somebody else's view is, um, you can bring them really far with you. And so something that I do before all internal comms at Hotjar, which I would say that I probably spend 60 to 70% of my working time on internal communication. And for every message that I'm going to send, I make a little matrix of who the intended audience is. So let's say it's an announcement. I just did this today. I wrote an announcement to our data, design, product, and engineering teams. And so I might make a, a matrix that has each of those as a row. And then I write what is going to be their biggest objection to my message. 
and then I write my response to that objection. And then I might write what is going to be the thing that makes them most proud if they were to get on board with this. And then I outline, okay, I think that this team might feel most proud if they can contribute in this way, or here's what their biggest challenges are. So I really go through stakeholder type by stakeholder type and try to use that to frame my messaging. And I spend a lot of time on this. For my internal communications, it's not uncommon for me to make infographics, like long, beautiful visual ways to express something. Um, I make Loom videos and Prezi videos all the time. I'm always like experimenting with uh, a new way to visualize things like pitch or like I might use pitch or Prezi or Keynote or something and Google Slides, but the animations just are not strong enough for me. Uh, <laughs> and um, and I make internal videos with a local video production company to really bring some ideas to life. So depending on the, what I'm trying to tell, I make sure that I use the right evidence to convince the right stakeholders, that I try to address their challenges and their, like, their questions up front, and then I try to keep the format really engaging through visuals like infographics and um, animations and stuff like that. Very cool. And spreadsheets. Let me not, not let me not say that it doesn't always come down to data. There are many stakeholders where I know that the answer to their questions will be a link to a mixed panel or a Tableau dashboard or a spreadsheet. So I'm not saying that I stay away from that. I just think that that's only one part of the story if you're really trying to build a nice arc. Yeah, totally. It's a mix of the data that you have or the, whatever uh, you want to back up and also the story you tell, right? So all the, all the quotations, like how that the, the whole hero's journey, which I love, of storytelling, and also you mentioned uh, to 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 sell is human. It's actually I go beyond in your day to day life. You know, in our day to day lives, as you know, you talk with your partner. You know, you talk with your kids, family. You are kind of you know, it's it's all it's all that you know. You are trying to convince them by bringing some benefits to them or whatever it is. So, so I, I I go as far as saying you know what everything <laughs> is selling in a way. I mean, not just you know pure like selling selling, but just like you are about going to like you mentioned. Uh, anticipate what are you know what are you gonna get out of it? What are their potential object objections to it? Which is great, you know, you reverse engineer that, and then you uh, okay now I know that like one two three this person is gonna think about this. This is just actually by itself. I think it's 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 a form of empathy in that sense that you are because you're so good at like you know putting yourself in your the other person's shoes. Uh, I guess it comes from maybe your even for your first role. You be really good at it that. If you put yourself in their uh, shoes and their archetype, then you know you'd, you'd uh, better empathize empathize with them, and then you'd both actually to come up with better, um, you know, uh, let's say responses or whatever it is that you're uh, communicating to them to bring them on board, right? So this is really cool. This is really cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. You mentioned that. Um, you mentioned that this extends beyond our professional lives and can be in our personal lives as well with family or with kids. So th this is an anecdote I, I didn't want to lose. Um, there was a, I, I can't recall where I heard this, but there was a great um, discussion I listened to where somebody said, everybody just wants to feel like they're in control, control of their destiny, control of their choices, control of their lives, even and especially children. And so instead of telling your child, um, you, you need to put your shirt on, or you need to put your pants on, if you ask, which would you like to put on first, your shirt or your pants, then they feel like they have a degree of agency and they feel like they get to be a little bit in control of their own destiny. And so I heard this and then the very next day at work, I um, 
I used it because what I recognized is that there is a team who was who who, who had validated um, something that they wanted to release to customers, and it was time to deliver that. And they were going forward with an approach on here's how we should do the rollout. We should do four buckets and we should do 25% get access to this new thing on Monday, 25% the following week, whatever. But there was still this huge degree of hesitation in like, are we sure this is the right approach? Is this actually the right way to bucket our customers? Like we're not sure. So So these timelines were kind of dragging out. And so I came to the table and I said, actually I have these other two ideas. Why don't we bucket the customers this way? or that way. And after a couple hours, the whole team came back and said, yeah, yeah, thanks for those choices, but our original one is the best one and here's why, and now we're moving forward tomorrow. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is exactly, like I'm not trying to play a game here. I was just trying to bring more options to the table and it was really effective because there was this feeling like we've considered options, we know what's best, let's go forward. And then we got the action, like this bias for action. Yes. No, that's that's <laughs> that's so cool. Thanks for sharing. And I guess yeah, I mean it, it gives it gives the I think as humans it's also something we always want to compare things, you know, this versus that, right? It's all like, you know, in different situations and, and then because if, if we just go off of something, you know, in our critical thinking, you know, by you, you mentioned yourself, like you're trying to understand the other person's, you know, objections. It's all about like, you know, yin and yang and kind of like how you kind of like uh, compared to different options and how you critically make the decision. Uh, because at the end of the day, I guess they say no decision is a bad decision, you know, uh, unless you have some supporting, uh, right. you know, these are the options and this is the supporting criteria. And then that's hence we made that decision. And hey, no one's gonna blame for anything because you you made a sound decision based on what you had at the time, right? Yeah. Oh, so that's cool. Awesome. Thank you so much, Megan, for sharing. Um, your very interesting approach to uh, setting this uh, dual way of like, you know, delivery, uh, OKRs and kind of discovery, if you will, from that perspective. Are there any kind of resources out there that you recommend our listeners to check out if they want to, you know, learn more about uh, this way of thinking? Um, I mean, I would definitely recommend the book I mentioned earlier to sell as human. I would also recommend uh, we haven't really touched on it here, but I think that the one of the most important things for product managers to do is kind of keep their eye on what's coming and learn to read the market and keep track of different signals that show them, okay, this is a shift that I should be paying attention to. So um, for that, I would recommend the book Trend Forecasters uh, Handbook by Martin Raymond. Mm-hmm. Um what else here? Yeah, I mean the podcast I listen to might be helpful. Like I love Freakonomics. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, so um, Freakonomics, uh, Masters of Scale, um, How I Built This. Those are those are like my my go tos when I want some inspirational leadership and to give myself some can do spirit of like yes I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome, Megan. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, we'll make sure to add the links and a description for all these resources you mentioned. That all, they're all really, really good, good ones out there. Thank you for sharing those. Where can our listeners, you know, follow your insights online, Megan? Uh, these days on LinkedIn, you can find me, uh, Megan Murphy, on LinkedIn. There are a lot of us so just look for the one at Hotjar I'm the only one there um I actually plan to to make my own website soon uh, and catalog talks and and events like this one so that people can kind of look through and see 
what content I'm, I'm, you know, putting out there and, and what my thinking is. So, um, but yeah, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you can find any news about that soon. Awesome. Very exciting. Very exciting. Thank you so much, Megan, for coming on the show and talking about, you know, setting objectives. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of PM Hub Podcast, guys. Uh, if you enjoyed it, feel free to share it on your social media. Leave a five-star review so we can reach more audience. If you have any suggestions, definitely send me a note at cyrus at productmanagerhub.org. Also, subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. I'm Cyrus Shirazian, and until next show, stay safe and healthy.